This is the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, episode 36. You're listening to the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, the number one resource for running a profitable home recording studio. Now your hosts, Brian Hood and Chris Graham. Welcome back to another episode of the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. I am your host, Brian Hood. I'm here with my co-host, Chris Graham. Chris, how you doing today, buddy? I am doing all right. I'm doing okay. Yeah, I heard that your secret project is uh, making progress right now. It's going well. It's been an interesting. Uh, it's been an interesting week or two. That's going really well. I'll talk about that more uh, on a future episode. Can you give us a hint as to what's coming? Is that a thing you can do? It involves audio. <laughs> that's great. That's awesome. People are enthralled right now listening to this. Yeah, I will say though, I'm kind of bummed because we were supposed to hang out like a week or two ago, and I was going to come down for Nam. I packed all my bags. You were like five minutes from leaving. I was like two to three minutes from leaving, and then my wife is like, hey, I need you to tighten the car seats in the other car. So I went on the car, and I'm like leaning over the back seat, tightening the car seats, thinking to myself, this is probably not going to be good for my back. And then my back was like, <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> and... <laughs> Went inside and laid down and uh, iced and did yoga all weekend instead of hanging out with you. So I was bummed, man, because we had plans to meet up people down here, which I did and you didn't. You missed out a lot of cool stuff. It stunk, man. I'm still not back to 100%. It's been like 10 days and I'm still like 95% maybe. Dude, yeah. I forgot to ask you about that when I chatted with you earlier, but the biggest thing that I feel like I missed out on was Chris Graham imparting more wisdom on how to roast coffee the Chris Graham way. Yeah, I was going to like, we're going to do like the Yoda mentoring. There is no try. I was going to teach you all these things about roasting coffee. Yeah. I was hopefully going to impress you with a Brian Hood good cup. Brian Hood good cup of coffee. That's hard to say, <laughs> but it also flows really well once you get it down. The Brian Hood could good cup. Gosh, that's a tongue twister. Anyways, let's stop talking about random shit that doesn't really matter. Uh, other than your back going out, that did matter. That sucks. I'm sorry, nah. buddy. So this episode is a special one because we're going to be talking about a subject that is the holy grail of studio owners, uh, the holy grail of really any audio entrepreneur, and that is passive income. And we've talked about some forms of passive or semi-passive income in the past. We've even talked about this specific subject of sync licensing in the past, but we've not given it justice because, to be honest, Chris and I know next to nothing about <laughs> the world of sync <laughs> licensing. So Chris, real quick, why should people be so excited about the potential opportunities within sync licensing? Well, I think the most important thing to point out here is that there are two types of money. There's money that you receive for doing something, and there's money that you receive for having done something a long time ago, but it just keeps on showing up. The euphemistic term for that is mailbox money. It is the holy grail of business owners. And one of the things that's so amazing about our industry is royalties, is that if you get your music in the right position you know so like uh, if you're mariah carey and all i want for christmas that's terrible if you that got beautiful. that song M mariah carey gets paid every christmas for that music being played whether she does anything or not she gets mailbox money for that now that opportunity is available for everyone that's a producer that's an audio engineer that's a composer that's working with bands to get points but rather than just explain how to get mailbox money let's have our guest Tell us a little bit how we can take our skills as musicians, as engineers, as producers, as composers, 
and convert that into mailbox money. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of our guest, the guest we have today is the CEO of a rapidly growing company here in Nashville called Soundstripe. And he's actually sitting next to me. He's a good friend of mine. He's an awesome dude. His name's Travis Terrell. I'm going to let you guys hear for yourself, straight from the horse's mouth, the opportunities involved with this. But before we get started with that, let's talk about Soundstripe real quick. Travis, can you give us just a brief overview of what Soundstripe is, what you guys do, and, and what the opportunity was that you jumped on and why you're growing so fast? Sure. Hey, Brian. Hey, Chris. Hey. Hey. Hey, buddy. Thanks for having me on, by the way. This is great. So, uh, yeah, Soundstripe basically sources really great music to filmmakers, videographers, companies small and large, marketers of all kinds. And we license that music to people as small as... Barbara in Nebraska that's licensing her cat video and she just wants a song to go on YouTube and we go all the way up the range to Microsoft and to Amazon and Tesla. And those are some of your customers, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we have a huge range of customers that we license music from. So yeah. The cool thing about them is I'm not just a fan of what they do. I'm not just their friends, but I am actually a paying customer. I actually pay for Soundstripe and I use them constantly for the videos that you see me do on the Six Figure Home Studio or any ads you've ever seen me run. Like I am an avid user of Soundstripe, so I'm excited to have him on. So you're thinking, you know, what is a company like Soundstripe, a micro sync licensing company for? Well, let's say you wanted to start a podcast called the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast and you needed an intro song. <laughs> you would go to Soundstripe and find a song that you felt worked for the vibe and use it, which is exactly what we did. That is exactly what we did. And then we hired a voiceover guy on Fiverr to do the voiceover. And that's how podcast intros are made. Yeah. There you go. You know, to give you a little backstory of why we exist. So I started as a producer. I was on the road all the time. I was hustling, not unlike most people probably listening to this podcast. So I didn't come from the business world. I come straight from being a producer. So Micah and I, so Mike is my uh, business partner. We started the studio together in 2010. So we were doing artist records every month, you know, the hustle, the game, right? Which is what 99% of our listeners are doing right now, I would say. Right, exactly. So we started getting interested in this very elusive creature called sync licensing that is a mystery to most people. And so we had a couple of friends and bands that had gotten big sinks on, say, uh, Grey's Anatomy and One Tree Hill. And this was back when One Tree Hill was a thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> And uh, so it kind of tells my age. But the point is, this was the time when Napster had just kind of ended. Spotify had just begun, but it had really tore apart a lot of the music industry. So everybody was frantic about what was happening. This was like 2008, 2009, and 2010. What is going to happen? And before that, I had worked briefly at a music house that produced jingles. And this is bespoke, custom jingle music that McDonald's would hire them to write a score for their commercial. And they would, of course, pay $20,000, $40,000 for these 30-second spots. And it was insane money. But it's also an extremely long sales cycle for something like that. Oh, my gosh. The competition was 
fierce, but there are several companies out there that were incredibly successful at this. And so over time, what happened was, the, well, the internet came along, right? And it just completely democratized a lot of this music. And so, you know, let me back up by saying that these internet companies started to come in, these audio libraries of sorts that had music by so-and-so composer, a random composer. So they would put all this music on these websites. And back then, I mean, they were doing this in the early 2000s, but there wasn't really anything creative about it, that the music was kind of terrible. It was kind of like the uh, Walmart of stock music where you would have three, 400,000 songs on this website. Are we talking about Audio Jungle? Uh, Okay. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) no. Okay. There's a lot of companies out there and I'm friends with a lot of them. So, but they really laid the groundwork for micro licensing companies. And this was probably early 2000s. So when we come along what we had recognized as producers was, number one, we were playing the game of trying to get a song of ours on One Tree Hill or Grey's Anatomy or MTV. So we would get these, what they call pitches that come in and they would say, hey, I'm looking for a, it sounds like Katy Perry, but it's not. It mentions the word firework and happy and it needs to be dancey and we need to have a girl singer on it. So Micah and I would get that in our inbox from who knows where it would come through the ether. We started researching how to get in touch with these people. What we saw, though, is we would get this request in. We would stay up all night making this track. We would even hire a singer sometimes, and then we'd stay up all night. We'd turn the song in at 8 a.m., and we finally figured out after about six months of doing this that they had also sent that to about 300 other people, <laughs> their other supervisor friends, their other publishers, labels, and all of their publishing friends had sent it to their thing. Like, by the end, it's just a madhouse of competition. So this serves the, the company very well because they have the pick of the litter when it comes to the song they want, but this wastes a lot of human resources on people that are going to make music and it will never get used or picked up or paid for. Yeah, it's um, crowdsourcing and just a simple supply and demand issue where you have every artist ever that's trying to get the same five spots, right? And so what happens is these companies, these networks, MTV and all these people that used to pay $20,000 for a spot can now say, you know what, we have 10, (laughs) and now we have five, and now we have two. And we finally, after like six months of trying this, got one spot, and it was a theme song for an outdoor channel show. And I'm like not a gonna, hunting show or something. Yes, I'm not going to say the show. So we landed the theme song, which is the Mecca. We were like, oh, this is great. But the deal ended up being they were not going to give any advance. They were going to give us publishing, and they were taking 50% of writers publishing too, and all of the publisher side of publishing. So we ended up with, I think, 25% of the song. And one of our writers actually wrote the song. And so our deal at the time was taking 50% of that. And this is what people are still trying to do today, right? I mean, a lot of people are just going for that one big kill. And a lot of our listeners have probably tried to do is, which is where you're working with a publisher that would send the cattle call out basically 
for this specific kind of song and this specific kind of vibe and you just throw it into the black hole and hope that you hear from them again. Right. And basically, we got tired of that. I mean, and so we got tired of the lottery of, you know, a lot of people, probably your listeners, just want to make a living. (laughs) They want to feed their families and pay their mortgage payment. And so that is what we desired more than fame and fortune. So we decided to create a company that was in this micro-licensing realm that was relatively new. But what we saw was this opportunity that the big companies did not see, and that is that everybody with a camera is now a filmmaker. (laughs) And look, you're making a podcast and you need music now. Uh, Think of the thousands and hundreds of thousands of YouTubers that now need music. Think about every small business out there is making Facebook video content. The thousands and thousands of Facebook ads that we all see on our news feeds. Right, exactly. So what about sync licensing to those people? And those are the things that the Justin Timberlakes are not thinking about. And those are the things that Universal Records, and they don't have the capacity to think about it. And so that's the opportunity that we saw, is that instead of going for the one big kill, go for thousands and thousands of small kills and maybe it will add up to be something larger than itself. As I understand it, I don't have almost any experience with this, but the studio that sort of captured my imagination, that sort of got me into audio in the first place, is a studio in Columbus, Ohio, that's now since closed, but it was like a $4 million facility. It was absolutely incredible. And one of the things they talked to me about, I'm like in high school when the studio opened, and I would go over there and record in the middle of the night and stuff when it was available. And they talked about, you know, in the old days, McDonald's or friends or whoever would come to you and they would want an exclusive license. They'd say, we want to give you $30,000 and now this song is ours. You can never use it for anything ever again and nobody else can ever use it. So with an exclusive license, like McDonald's could buy the song and now Wendy's couldn't use the same song on their commercial as well. This sort of revolution of microsync, correct me if I'm wrong, has a lot to do with non-exclusivity was saying, hey, I've got this song, you can use it for a pretty small fee, but a lot of other people can use it as well because, you know, Darlene from Nebraska making cat videos doesn't care if Sarah from North Carolina making puppy videos uses the same song on her video. Yeah, that's correct. Basically, the way Facebook and YouTube work is this content, even though it sticks around forever on your feed, it's in and out in a flash. And so in two hours, whatever you posted will be forgotten (laughs) Uh, unless you're, you know, one of the big guys. So to us that it means, yes, one song can have multiple thousands of people using that song for for a sync. So I think the interesting thing about this micro sync revolution is that instead of everyone going after an exclusive license for one song with McDonald's that was $30,000, $40,000. Now it's, man, if I could write a song that was on a thousand YouTube videos, now we're talking about like some pretty serious money. You know, like that would be, you know, what, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000? Well, it just depends on which provider you go with, which platform, which company. 
And it also depends on your strategy for that. But I would say yes. I mean, a lot of different companies are different. We'll get into that later about non-exclusive, exclusive, of course. There's different deals to be made and there's no real wrong answer. There's many companies that do it differently than we do and that's all great. But the point is that there is a song that could be used many times over. And to me, it's, I mean, you guys are both math geeks, right? Yes, specifically Chris. <laughs> In basic terms, you can have one $10,000 license or $100, $100 licenses. And it's the same. We talk about this on the podcast quite a bit, which is yeah. high income, low volume, meaning you know doing albums yes. where they're $10,000, you do one a month, or doing like Chris does with mastering, who does a high volume, like tons and tons of songs at a much, much lower price point. And we've talked about this before, but I like the smaller price point, bigger volume version because you're not so caught up on one client. You're not so dependent on one client. If that one client falls through, you lose an entire month of income. Yes, different strategies. And there are people that very much win at the high price point. And a lot of freelancers do that, right? They're almost non-entrepreneurial people that they produce one. I mean, Coldplay does one album every two years and hopes that it's going to be great. So instead of making a song every month and releasing it. So let's shift gears now. Let's just say the average person listening right now they're a music producer. They probably have songs that they've produced of their own or their band that they're in. And they're just trying to get started in sync licensing without joining the quote unquote big leagues where you're just trying to go for a big theme song or a big TV show or movie. How does one get started in, in any of this, whether it's that big league kind of approach or the, the micro licensing? Where does one get started and where does one start things off on the right foot? You know, honestly, uh, what I tell people is that is to find something that works for you. It just depends on what your strategy is. And let's take a couple of strategies, right? So you have a band that really works on a record they did. And say they've worked on it for six months, a year, they want to release it, right? So obviously, and if you're not releasing music on a regular basis, which that's another subject, I think you should be doing that. But if you're the ones that do it every six months, every year, then it is important to find good homes for those 10 songs that you make. And you want to make the best bang for your buck, right? You want to get the most money out of those 10 songs. And so how would you do that? So it really also depends on what kind of music that you make. If you're making very sad acoustic music, it's probably not going to work for micro-licensing. It just kind of depends on a lot of different factors. So then if you're saying, okay, I'm a band and I want to get into this big world of music licensing. So what I would suggest is, so the music supervisors are the ones that really control this landscape. And that's like the traditional way of, not necessarily the micro licensing, but the major licensing. What would you call major, li like non-micro licensing? I just call it traditional. Those are the gatekeepers in the traditional sync licensing world. Yep. The, the music supervisors are the middlemen between the a music creator and then the network or the TV show. And so they are the ones that handle choosing the song. They are the ones that handle all the licensing, legal paperwork between the publishers and the labels. And I've met tons of supervisors now that they all say the same thing is that somehow you have to get the music into my lap. <laughs> which 
is near impossible, right? Why is that? Because uh, think about it. Everybody is trying to do the same thing. <laughs> like a record label. Yeah. Like everybody is trying to do the same thing. So a lot of uh, unsolicited material just doesn't get listened to. So knowing somebody, having a friend in the industry definitely helps uh, uh, to get into a supervisor's lap. Although I will say uh, most supervisors love music. Uh, they are all the time listening to new music and so they're constantly thinking of would this song work on a show that I'm working on so that I mean really it starts with that relationship and so I would suggest if you're indie go that route even though it's a tough road <laughs> so let's just say for the for the average person that's doing indie music let's just say they have a catalog of songs yeah would they try to take that catalog of songs to one of these music supervisors or would they go to the music supervisor first and ask what they're looking for how would this relationship even get started we can go back and also say that there's also one more way to go about this and is to go through a music licensing company and they have all the relationships with the supervisor and so you can either go it yourself meet the supervisor or a music licensing company. And these are often music licensing agencies. They're almost like boutique agencies that deal with a small number of artists that can represent you and that pitches your stuff. So like a management company. Yeah, it's basically a management company. Are there some notable ones? Yeah, my favorite music licensing agency, I think would be Marmoset, Portland. They do amazing work. But of course, they're looking for a certain style of music. And they sort of do some micro sync stuff like we do but they're very good at finding a home for a TV show or an ad or something like that. A lot of the people listening right now, they want to get into seek licensing and you have this unique perspective of having been in their shoes before yeah, and being in the role now where you're the CEO of a rather large company that's rapidly growing and sees it from the other side of things too. And you've also been in this unique position of where you're actually part of the traditional you know, the big wig trying to get the songs on the TV shows and the movies. Yep. So for someone listening right now, how do you get started today? Like, how do you get started without falling into that black hole? Okay, so first of all, you, you need a collection of songs. I would say don't even think about getting into this unless you probably have 20 or 30 songs that are very good just sitting on a hard drive ready to go. Right, so fully mixed and mastered, fully mixed and mastered, and no vocals, I assume, right? We do both, but you definitely need the instrumental track. It will not work without the instrumental track with microsync because I think it's about eighty percent uh, will choose the instrumental version mm. over over the the vocal version. Well, and let me throw an idea out there for our listeners that I think they'll find interesting. So, that piece of information is really interesting. The 80% of sync licenses for you guys are for instrumental versions. I would say the vast majority of our listeners are creating songs with vocals in them. So the song, if you just take the mix, you pull it up, you mute that, you get the instrumental version mastered as well. Suddenly you have two products. You've got the song itself that you're marketing to listeners, and then you have the instrumental that you could be marketing to license. Uh, it somewhere. And I think what's so interesting about that um, is there's a, I'm sure I've shared it on the podcast in the past, but years ago, uh, Henry Ford, when he was manufacturing Model Ts, they used a lot of wood. Like the panels, the doors were made of wood, the seats are made of wood. 
and they had just a ton of leftover scrap wood. And Henry Ford saw this and said, oh, you know what? Let's start a new company to deal with this scrap wood. Here's what we'll do. We'll char it. We'll turn it into charcoal, and then we'll compress it into briquettes, and we'll call it Kingsford Charcoal. <laughs> no way. I did not know that. It's the number one charcoal company to this day. It was started with trash. They threw away the ex. There was literally stuff that was going to the dump, and they said, hey, let's turn this into charcoal briquettes. Wham, bam. Now it's a huge business. It's the number one brand. So my point in saying that that's so interesting about your common 80% is instrumentals is that for us music creators, for producers, etc., you have this extra asset that's going to waste. And it's these instrumentals that could make you a bundle in sync licensing that aren't necessarily going to detract from what you're doing with your fans to market, you know, the songs that have got lyrics and vocalists and all that. That's right. I mean, Chris, you hit on a great point because that's how Mike and I got started. We had 20, 30, 40 songs sitting on a hard drive that we had actually pitched to these big sync companies, right? That did not get landed. Uh, and, uh, and then a couple of them were artist records that we had done that we took the instrumental versions of and they had no real value outside of themselves you know like they're not worth anything right it's the scraps that no one wants these songs aren't necessarily going to be used on the radio or like they're not going on spotify's top 100 right these songs are made for commercials and they're 30 seconds and they're 60 seconds and so it was a perfect marriage to say okay could we find value for this leftover scrap and yeah, so that's kind of what we did. And that's how it started. And so I 100% agree that you have to make your own value and things aren't just inherently worth something. <laughs> so I say this analogy a lot, but I bought my house, let's say below $200,000 a couple years ago. And what if I just put it up for sale now for $800,000? It would not sell. You can think it's worth that, <laughs> But that doesn't mean anybody will buy it. And at the end of the day, it's worth what somebody will pay for it. And so if somebody will pay 300 well, guess what your house is worth? It's worth 300 And so this is what I tell all the people getting into this is that, sure, Taylor Swift can get a sink for $50,000. But look at the work that she has done to build her brand, to go on tour to provide value for millions of people that now those songs are worth $50,000 and more. But the little instrumental song that I did in my little bedroom is not worth $50,000. So that's how you have to look at it. And that's why I think that the music industry is changing so much. And I think that's why a lot of people get very uh, defensive and upset is they think, a song is worth a lot of money. Like when it's actually not, it's worth something because you did make it, but it's worth what you're willing to put into it to make it worth something. So are you saying though that maybe some of these albums where you just mute the vocals and bounce the songs down, you can't get any value from those? No, some can for sure. Yeah, and I would say there are a lot of songs that are worth money in the micro licensing world if you just muted the vocal, which is so funny to me. But uh, <laughs> I will say, though, that you know a lot of filmmakers now uh, use both versions. So 
they'll kind of edit it how they want. So, and that's why the instrumental is so important. So they'll use the the vocal version for 10 seconds of the commercial or for their edit. But then the rest of it, they don't want a person singing on it for the last 60 seconds. So they'll come in, they'll edit it themselves. They'll make their own version, basically, that has some instrumental, some with vocals on it. Exactly. Sometimes you want, oh, we're just feeling good, that part. (laughs) And then the rest of it, I don't care about the verse. And so that's kind of how they do that. Just for you guys listening, first and foremost, I'll say that the very first thing I ever downloaded from Soundstripe was actually, it was all 10 songs from someone that had just muted vocals and put, in, put the songs up on to Soundstripe. And that was the music I put behind the entire website building course, the website creation course that I have that's for free. It's in the Six Figure Home Studio Academy. You can join that course for free right now. But that was just an album that I downloaded the instrumental version of that album. It had both versions on the site. So I can vouch for this. But I also want to say that the intro to this podcast, that whoa, that part is actually on the vocal version of the song but I only use that part from the vocal version of the song and everything else is the instrumental version of the song. So I have mixed and matched there as well. So Right. Uh, what I'd say too is that a lot of bands are worried about their brand image. And so a lot of them are hesitant to get into MicroSync. And what I would say is that, of course, like it's something to think about, but I'm all about being practical and creating a business. Mm-hmm. So would you rather have maybe 1500 bucks a month coming in or, you know waiting for the big sink, you know? So it's kind of a give and take scenario there. Yeah. Well, I think that's super interesting what you're saying. I think a lot of bands are hesitant. They are worried that it's going to somehow undermine them. And I would say, I am not an expert in this, but I don't think any band ever has had a really big opportunity, say, you know, like a Columbia Records or Universal or something came knocking and they were going to sign them and all of a sudden they heard the song in the background of a YouTube video the instrumental version, or they heard it on a, the background of a commercial, and are like, what? These, this band is not cool. <laughs> We're not going to sign them anymore. And that's interesting. I think that fear is, is generally unfounded. But as I'm kind of listening to you talk about this, I think another interesting aspect of turning, you know, these instrumentals, which are creating no value because they don't even exist. You don't even have an instrumental version of all the songs you've ever worked on but to suddenly put them in a place where they're creating passive income for you. And not only that is that I'd love to hear you talk more about this is that a lot of times on, on these sort of microsync websites, you might actually have several songs within one song that can be standalone products. If your bridge is super different and creates a really moody vibe that works well for one sort of video, and then you're, pre-chorus and your chorus work great for another type you might be able to snip the songs up into multiple loops where you're creating you know multiple products from your leftovers yeah i'll say that i download you know a 30 second 45 second clip all the time and that's all that there is on it what would you say the average length of a download is for for soundstripe like as far as the the track length average we try to go from three to five minutes But I will say that for all those tracks, now we're providing 15, 30, 60, and 90 second versions of all those songs. I've noticed you have a lot of selections for which, even in like a six minute track that I've seen, they'll have a 15 second version within that. Yep. So yeah, and this all goes back to type of customer that we have. So if you're doing a wedding video, they're like a longer piece, three to five minutes. If you're doing a corporate video, it's like two to four. 
But of course, there's the shorter Instagram versions uh, that you'll want 30 to 60 seconds on. Uh, And then there's little bumpers that are 15 seconds to 30 seconds. So it is all across the board. So we're kind of talking about two different things. So somebody that has music that's just sitting on a hard drive or they produced a band, they can mute the vocals, they can sign up for one of these micro-sync licensing services, and then they're off to the races, right? But then there's another type of person that is very passionate about creating music for sync licensing as is, like just as a producer that's just sitting in their bedroom uh, studio, and they're just, they're like, I want to really win at this. And we have people making, you know, six figures now. So it's totally possible. And there are people that I know that do very well on other sites too. So it's totally possible to do, but you have to be very intentional, just like you do with everything else. If you're creating music for micro-sync specifically, there's a, a method to the madness. It's learning the ins and outs of what videographers really yeah. I mean, want. It's, it's, it, we talk about niches all the time. It's its own niche. Because oh, it totally is. If you go look at probably the top five percentile of the tracks downloaded on Soundstripe, they probably have, and I'm, I'm just guessing here, they probably have a very specific vibe to them, a very specific style to them uh, yeah. that the most popular tracks tend to have, and it's because that is what that type of niche is looking for. Uh, am I wrong here, or is that roughly no, correct? Yeah, and I will say that uh, I actually had a chart pulled up. I was going to use it, but it, basically the genre is all over the map. So really... People like electronic music, they like ambient music, cinematic. Those are our top sold genres. But mood is like, that's the most important thing when you're talking about a track for score, for jingles, for anything. It's not really the type of music, but it's the mood. So if you're going, most people, are, you're wanting a, an inspiring track, a happy track. Those are the top sold for sure. And then everything else is kind of just below it. So but you're creating a track that, I mean, there is a almost a, um, a systematic approach that you can take. We have a few composers that take a very scientific approach to making a track that's perfect for sync. So it starts off soft, ambient, and then it builds up into a big chorus, and then it drops. And, you know, and it's, and you can picture the way a video is made, like a three-minute video. So it starts off like epic shots of scenery and then the guy talks and then you know or if it's a wedding then they're saying their i do's it's soft and then it builds up and then party at the end and so these song creators have the video in mind that they're creating the music for ahead of time basically yeah the best ones are doing some of that to where they know what the audience is looking for and so i will say that the bottom performers on our site are usually uh, just records that people threw up with the instrumental versions. Uh, Usually the top ones are tracks that people specifically made with the intention of it being on Soundstripe. Have you ever actually sat down and thought about where your next client will come from? Most freelancers don't because most freelancers' number one strategy for getting new clients is something called hope marketing. And if that sounds like you, you're not alone. Most freelancers think that just by putting out great work, clients will come banging down your door to hire you. Now, while you obviously do need to be good at what you do, we both know that this strategy does not work. Otherwise, your calendar would be 100% booked solid with amazing projects from your ideal clients. 
So to help you with this fight against hopium addiction, I'm excited to announce that our flagship coaching program, Clients by Design, has finally opened up applications again. This transformational coaching journey is not a one-size-fits-all. It's tailor-made just for you. We'll do a deep dive into your business to see what's missing, and we'll lay out a step-by-step roadmap to guide you over the next six to eight months. And here's the best part. We don't just give you the plan and send you on your way. We give you personal one-on-one help so you never get stuck. And we make sure you actually follow through with something called our absolute accountability system. So if you're ready to stop relying on hope marketing and ready to start building your own client acquisition machine so you can get a steady flow of clients, then it's time to step up and apply for clients by design and see if you're a good fit. Just go to sixfigurecreative.com slash coach. And I'll be the first to say that this program is not for everyone. So far, we've only accepted about 25% of those who apply. So if you want to find out if you're a good fit, just go to sixfigurecreative.com slash coach and fill out the application. Now here's our show. So you would say like, you know, often it would be YouTube creators, it'd be commercials. And, you know, for someone like, you know, I'm a huge Casey Neistat fan. I just think that guy's amazing. All of his videos have a certain vibe and he wants music that exemplifies that, that brings that vibe to life. And all of his songs generally do sort of have this similar, like epic, amazing experience, vistas, cool stuff. But, you know, another another example might be, you know, if you're trying to sell, let's take it back to Kingsford Charcoal, and what kind of song does Kingsford Charcoal want while, while they show shots of dad grilling in the backyard winning at life? If there's going to be a certain, like... There's going to be acoustic guitar for sure, maybe a slide guitar. Yeah, it can be drilled down, very specific. And these, these yeah. filmmakers are looking for that perfect song. And so it's... I'll say also, there's a couple of rules that I tell people when they're getting into sync, such as the songs that do well uh, and songs that do not do well. So if you're a vocal version, say, songs that do not do well is people's names mentioning in the verses, uh, songs about Sarah or something, they do not do well, songs about very specific things, like I'm going to run down park avenue and go get a donut and then i'm going to talk to dave about his blah 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 it needs to be broad enough for people to put themselves in that song basically yes it's broad enough to where it would work over a multitude of situations this is not just microsync this is the biggest music supervisors saying the same thing and we find it to be incredibly true too so like not all bands work for sync uh some do very well because their choruses are all about having fun or like they're very broad topics where they're very universal. So that's what I would uh, say very much so. Sort of this vibe of like your songs exemplify, I'm unhappy, but if I had this product, I'd finally be happy. Yes, exactly. (laughs) The other rule I would say is that a lot of Beatles music used to do this, but don't start uh, cinematic, but then turn country. <laughs> and so that's where the experimentation of this is. You have to work within the realms of the rules of this. And so stay within a vibe. And so you're going to do well if you're like, oh, I want to create a chill electronic vibe here. And then for three minutes. So I'm going to do that. And I'm going to stick on a mood and I might get more intense, I might get less intense, I might get soft, I might get quiet, but it's still chill electronic. And I'm still like listening to it while I'm driving my car down the beach at night. 
So you would say that it's these moods. So when someone goes on a website like yours, they probably have a word in mind. Right. Uh, chill uh, is a word you just used or triumphant totally. or yeah, something like that. So someone's going to type in the word chill and your content creators will have created music and will say, oh, this song is chill. We'll put it in the chill category. And then someone who's thinking about purchasing one of these songs would listen to songs in the chill category and say, oh, yeah. Or maybe they'd say, I want something that's chill, but also a little bit dark, but that's also a little bit spacey. They're going to use these words. And if the song exemplifies that, then there's a chance of getting a sync license from the customer there. Right. Absolutely. The, the content creators don't know music the way we know music. So we have to think in their terms. So we have to think in mm. uh, adjectives and moods and yeah they're not thinking and we do have key and bpm listed as things and some people do use that but mostly people are saying i want a beautiful cinematic sounding song i know as someone that searches for music consistently on there i will look for the mood first and then the genre second yeah and then the length those are the three things and sometimes the link's not that important because you can just cut a certain section out that you want and those are the only three things i really care about when i'm looking for music interesting and then i just power through your song the list of songs the hundreds of songs that come up on that one little thing i'm looking for that one thing catches my ear i download it that person gets their paycheck and i get my song that's right that's how it works basically in a nutshell well i have a i think a thought somewhere we could jog with this episode is just presenting ideas to our listeners of ways that they could could use sync licensing as a way to generate additional or perhaps their entire income. And I keep I have this idea that keeps coming back to me. I think about myself 15 years ago. Um, I was producing mostly singer-songwriters, and a lot of what I did for a living was I would recruit what I thought would be the perfect session musician, and I would pitch that to the artists, and I would say, hey... I know you're into XYZ artist. I got his bass player. And I know you're also into that artist. I got his drummer. And here's how much it would cost to do a record with me and these guys who are on your favorite records. So the thought that I have with sync licensing is you have all these musicians out there who aspire to be session musicians. If you're in any size of a city, there are people who just want to play in records all day long. And it makes me think about how cool would it be for our producers that are listening to say, hey, I'm going to reach out to the five best guys in town. I'm going to have them all over and we are going to record for a couple days and we're going to work as a collective to make songs for sync licensing. But I'm also going to book singer songwriters and, you know, solo artists and I'm going to have them come in and contribute, but also sell this whole production to the individual artists as well. So, you know, at the end of the day, you walk out with, hey, we did a bunch of songs that were happy-go-lucky and a bunch of songs that were chill and a bunch of songs that were dark and triumphant. And then we also did an EP for this girl. And we also did all the backing tracks for this singer-songwriter. And so you could negotiate with your session artists and say, hey, uh, we're going to put together these songs. We're going to share equity and then we're going to put them on a sync licensing website. Um, but then also that is going to cover you guys spending a couple hours doing tracks for this particular artist, or we're going to do a song for that particular artist. So there's an interesting, I think, opportunity to negotiate with other content creators to come together to create multiple types of content that can be monetized in a bunch of different ways. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. That's really smart. I mean, because really what we're all trying to do is create this passive income. We keep talking about this, right? And so I, I think yeah. sync licensing is a great way, especially what we do to provide some passive income. And, you know, just like uh, my uh, my grandpa used to say, there might be good money in it, but doesn't mean there's easy money in it. <laughs> and so... Uh, <laughs> Like, that's a good. That's a good quote. It doesn't mean it's easy, uh, and so it might be good, but it doesn't mean it's easy. So this is for people that want to put in the work. Of course, like you could make ten tracks and see what you do with them, and I suggest you do that and shop them around. I mean, there's there's literally there's tons of websites out there that do this. Now we take a more closed approach, so we're not open to just any uh, producer can. You have a whole vetting process where you work with a very small amount of producers and then you also are basically the gatekeepers for which songs get used on your platform and which are sent back to the artist, right? Like you're pretty selective over your library. Yes, we are. And we're basically borderline a label in itself now that... I mean, you're technically our label, right? Yeah, technically. Yeah. So it, it's a new age label that we're managing the careers of sync licensing composers, which is so weird. Yeah, it's crazy. Like um, you guys, that was pretty recent, like within the past six to eight months. I remember Trevor tell me when you guys got your, all the paperwork in order as a label to make that shift. Yeah, it's nuts because none of us wanted to be a label at all. We were like, no, God, no label. But we found that at the end of the day, quality really matters here. Quality and quantity. Uh, so we had to kind of make a decision to like, we needed to be more in control of the product and we thought we could provide resources that it's hard for a producer, home producer to do, like session musicians, like you're talking about, like mix engineers. and Yeah, you have a mix engineer on staff. Like you have, yeah, you guys invest a lot into your team of producers, which a lot of platforms don't do. But let's just talk about from the perspective, and a lot of, a lot of listeners are wondering this right now, like from the perspective of the average producer, let's just say it's even above average producer, someone that is great at what they do, they right. have some songs, what platform do they go to now? Because it can't be Soundstripe unless you guys are looking for more composers right now, which I'm not sure if you are or not. But Yeah, the gate's closed, but I mean, you can always apply. It won't hurt you to apply. And we do listen to all that music that comes in. And uh, But there are tons. I mean, there's Pond5 out there, which we have a good relationship what is with. That Pond5. A pond, how do you spell that? Uh, P-O-N-D-5. That'll be on our show notes. These, <laughs> these will all be listed on our show notes page if you go to the sixfigurehomestudio.com slash 36 slash 36, but continue on. Yeah, there's um, Music Bed, uh, which is a popular one. Art List, which is our direct competitor. Epidemic Sound. So yeah, I, would talk, I mean, these are all companies that we compete with. But again, to us, art is very subjective. So we found that some music works really well on a, a competitor's website that does really crappy on ours and vice versa. So it just depends on the kind of music that you make and the type of projects that the company sells to. What can the composers kind of come to expect if they were to get picked up by someone like Soundstripe, like Musicbed, like Artlist? Yeah, so most of the traditional deals, and we're, we're not like that anymore, but most of the traditional deals are kind of a, uh, a revenue split on the, the sync fee. So most companies don't take back-end royalties of any kind. They don't mess with publishing. They don't mess with master ownership. They'll take 50% or 70% or 30%, whatever. Uh, different companies have different uh, models. And so really, they're just paying 
you for the sync fee, which that's why it's such a good thing because you're not splitting even uh, publishing royalties. So the part that I'm excited about is if you say get your song out there to 5,000 potential videos floating around, some are on uh, local TV, some are on YouTube, some are on blah, 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 but you still own that publishing that you have with BMI, ASCAP, whatever, uh, and you have your publishing company set up, you can still collect back-end royalties on that. And so there are some people that are getting, you know, $800 checks every, you know, year or every quarter from just randomly, (laughs) like, you know, from those songs being used. So, you know, what these companies are doing is they're paying, or the customer is paying the sync fee, which is, short for synchronization. You're paying for access to use that copyright on a video of any kind and to pair it with that video. So you're not you have to get permission from the copyright holder and the master rights owner to do that. And that's, and that's why you see so many videos on YouTube get taken down because they don't have rights to that song that they put on their video. Yeah, obviously you can't put a Skrillex song on a YouTube video because Skrillex wants his money. <laughs> and so that's and that's right. And so that's why all these creators are going to companies like ours. And that's kind of why there's a lot of value for producers now to get involved in this uh, because it is just exploding. I've got a question So as I'm kind of imagining what it would be like to run a company like this, I would imagine that there'd be an interesting dynamic of supply and demand of figuring out, wow, we have so many chill songs, but based on our like our analytics, not many people are searching for chill songs on the website, but wow, we have so many people that are searching for triumphant vibes, but we don't really have any results in there. Do you guys have like a system or is there, is this a normal thing or, or not where you're able to communicate back with your artists or there are websites that do that to say, Hey, FYI, everybody wants this particular vibe. Here's a keyword that's being searched frequently where there's, there's a soft spot here. There's more demand than there is supply with this vibe. Right. Yeah. So we're a very data driven company. So that is number one on us. We're looking at why do people download this music? What are they doing with that music? How many songs did they listen to before they downloaded a song? Like all these things are kind of generated in reports and the top of next year, we're actually we're excited to hire a data specialist nice. just to do this, nice. uh, which I'm really pumped about. But this is, it's something that Netflix does as well. They know a lot about the viewer and what you watch and what you keep wanting more of. And so that's kind of where we're at. And so, yes, we kind of know all that and and we're constantly kind of trying to balance what the majority of users need and then what we also need as filler to provide value so the customer stays a customer. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, of course, Netflix needs the big hit like Orange is the New Black and uh, House of Cards and Stranger Things. 
uh, and that will appeal to the majority. But also, last night I watched a documentary about a battleship (laughs) (laughs) that nobody will probably watch except me, but it makes me love Netflix even more. So what I kind of explained to the team is like you need the home run, but you also need... The Texas Leaguer. Yeah, exactly, yeah. just to, to get you through. So, of course, there's the big songs like the cinematic, the big epic sweeping strings and that sort of stuff that does really well. But another strategy, instead of playing that game, play the micro of micro and go all the niche genres that people still want, like polka music or like... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like death metal that nobody will download on our site, but there are the occasional ones that use it. And so are, are, there, are there niches that you can fulfill in a micro-licensing platform? And that's what these companies are going to be looking for. Is there's going to be looking, is this something that A, is a big hit that people are going to love, or B, is going to fill a spot that we don't have in our catalog. Yeah, and so we uh, give an email once a month to our partners and artists that kind of explain, here's the top tags, here's the top keywords that people use, make more of this. And we used to be very hands-on and saying, try this kind of song, try these instruments, they're really working. People don't like chimes as much as you would think. Like, uh, <laughs> like get rid of the bells, like that sort of stuff. So we're very kind of hands-on now in that regard. So, yeah. Okay, so if I'm an artist, I get picked up by Soundstripe, I get picked up by Musicbed, picked up by Artlist or some of these other people that you are either direct competitors or non-direct competitors with. How many songs do I have to write a month to stay on your platform? Or is there any amount of songs that I have to fulfill on my end of the deal? Yeah, so I can only speak for my platform. Other platforms, I think that you can just put your uh, record up and call it a day. And that definitely can work. For us, it doesn't work as well because people constantly want more material. And so the more you produce the more chances you're going to have. And it's all about quality and quantity on this. So the best performers are the people that have over time uh, produced between three and five tracks a month for us. Uh, And this can go up or down based on different factors. I mean, we have one artist in particular that gave us 10 songs in the very beginning that were really great songs, but then didn't give us any more. Uh, and he was very well performing up until a certain point. And then it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. And so to me, it's just like releasing music on streaming that you guys talked about last episode. It's a good lesson to keep releasing music and don't get so hung up on the 10 most perfect songs ever and that's a big lesson in sync licensing too, is you have to keep producing and move on and move on and ship, ship, ship and get it out there and don't focus so much on creating the most perfect 10 songs for sync because guaranteed they'll be, they're going to be forgotten in six months. Yeah, we talked about on episode 35 of the podcast, we talked about speeding up that feedback loop instead of, you know, putting a ton of songs out at once as an artist or recording ton of songs at once as a producer, 
getting one at a time. And that's that right. way you can shorten the feedback loop. Yeah. Kind of, we got this from the lean startup. Then you Love get, that. you measure, you learn, and then you adapt as needed. And then you do it again. And you keep doing that over and over again, build, measure, learn, build, measure, learn. And every time you do something, especially on a platform like Soundstripe, you're going to get a little bit of data back. You're going to see what your download numbers are. You're going to see what was effective and what wasn't. And then you can just adapt from there. That's totally right. I love what you're saying about ship, 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 ship. Don't work on your opus. You need to have a process for creating a lot to get good enough to have that one magical record. And I think a great example of that as far as artists go is Miles Davis. Yeah. Huge Miles Davis fan. Same. His record, Kind of Blue, is the best-selling jazz record of all time. And for good reason, it's like incredible. It's bonkers. But Miles Davis recorded 51 studio albums like he just was a machine and because he was a machine he was able to get in the studio enough and create fast enough for magic to finally happen and kind of blue if you're trying to get into jazz go listen to miles davis's kind of blue we need like a music nerd gear slut alert <laughs> you know that's funny and i know you guys are very tactical people but to get all a meta on this is that i think stephen king was asked at a conference one time, this guy walked up to him and say, what kind of pencil do you use when you write? <laughs> and he was just like, what the hell are you talking about? He's like, get home and freaking write. Like, write. And so a lot of this is due to fear of a lot of times we get hung up in the process so much to where we're just banging our heads against the wall and we don't end up releasing anything because of fear it's not good enough, fear it's uh, not right for this side or that side. That's when you you start writing with your head instead of your heart. Exactly. And it, this is a balance we must create because, of course, we're trying to do this for a living. So we must use kind of our processes and there's a lot of science involved. But also the key is... And I think for our composers that do so well, and I've talked to them recently, and and I was like, how do you work through this writer's block thing? Do you ever get this anymore? Because they're paid to sit and write all the time. And they're like, honestly, the writer's block that we thought we had has all went away now because we get up in the morning and our job is to write. And if it's not good, you write anyway. And your job from 8 to 10 is to do something, produce something. And that's what Stephen King does. He Every day, he writes 5,000 words a day. And that's that's his, like, no matter what. And he also says that's the difference between an amateur and a professional, somebody that forces themselves to write. That is one of my biggest things in life is habit over motivation. If you just put habit into place, you're not waiting for motivation. You're not waiting for motivation to finally hit you. And then you write 20,000 or 30,000 yeah. or 50,000 words. No, you just do 5,000 a day. There is a story they talk about, the, I think it's called the 20 mile march. It's two groups were trying to get to the South Pole in Antarctica. And one group was just doing it in fits and spurts. Whenever the weather was good, they'd do a hundred miles. And when the weather was bad, they would stay and do nothing. And the other group would do 20 miles a day, no matter what. And at the end of this, that group that was going in fits and spurts all of them died. And this group that did 20 miles a day, no matter what, it was part of the routine. If it was a perfect day outside and they got 20 miles done in two hours, they'd stop, they'd set up camp and they would wait and rest. In the days where you know 20 miles took 15 hours, 16 hours, they would do it and then they would stop and camp and rest. And that group made it to the South Pole and back faster than anyone ever had and they all survived. So I think that's a very wow. important uh, story. A moral of that story is just stop waiting on 
motivation to hit you and focus on habit. Focus on that 5,000 words a day if you're Stephen King or that one song a week if you're a, a sync licensing artist or yeah. if you're a producer and you're you know trying to work with artists and you're struggling, maybe it's doing cold outreach to 50 artists a week instead of yep. uh, waiting for people to come to you. It's, it doesn't matter what you do, that moral fits in your life. Yep, absolutely. And yeah, all the people that do really well uh, on our site, it's the habit. It's the, because there's not the perfect, song and so just make a song and upload it and see how it does learn get the feedback loop tighter and then yeah so i tell everybody that it's more than ever it's less about uh the perfection of it and just that it launches and so yeah that i mean our company wouldn't be around at all if we'd have sat around and made it perfect yeah let me just throw one kind of pro tip out here for you guys that are new to listening to podcasts or that are new to listening to informational podcasts like ours, that little button on your phone with a triangle and two lines, the pause button, it's great when people say stuff as brilliant as what these guys just said to push that button and think about it for a minute. You don't have to listen to the podcast all the way through from front to back. I know for me as a podcast listener, when I learned something like that, to just press pause and think about it for a minute or maybe even hit rewind, man, I love what you guys are saying right now. And I wish I could go back in time and communicate to myself as a younger artist, man, perfection is the devil. Don't just pursue that. Become disciplined, create, 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 and create a habit there. So, man, it's cool stuff. All right, just to shift gears here now, uh, we have a thread going inside of the Six Figure Home Studio community. This is our Facebook group. It's a free Facebook group. Just look on Facebook for the Six Figure Home Studio community, and you can join it for free. Uh, We have a thread going where people have submitted questions for Travis here. And uh, we're going to go through some of these. You can take as much or as little time to answer these as you want, Travis. So, Wow. The world is my oyster. It's exactly right. So the first question that I want to ask here is, it's from Adam Slinger. He asks, how much do you or your company care about the artists behind the music being an active band? Is it a turnoff to have the music be made by a producer and not sold on iTunes? Or is it better to have a real project behind it? Great question, Adam. This is a huge debate among the music licensing world. And so a lot of uh, big uh, networks are looking for, they're looking to break bands, right? So they're very conscious of this, while in micro sync, we couldn't care less. So it really just depends on, again, the strategy and approach that you're trying to take. If you're trying to get on MTV, if you're trying to get on One Tree Hill, they're looking for artists that have a profile on Spotify, that have some traction, that they want to be the hero and they want to push that song out there and that they know that that band has a team behind them that can really work their magic. And so, yeah, I would say uh, altogether it doesn't matter. I'm of the approach that it doesn't matter as much, but again, it's a debate. Okay, next question is from Daniel Maybon. Daniel, I probably messed up your last name, so I'm sorry about that. He says, where do you see the future of sync licensing going? Do you see larger boutique agencies still being the preferred option when music supervisors are looking for new music? Or do you see more independent platforms becoming popular due to the growing amount of DIY composers slash engineers out there? Daniel, great question. The future of music licensing is super promising. I am very bullish on it because obviously I wouldn't have this company, (laughs) but I would say that music supervisors will always be around 
and there will always be a need for custom music score. So there will always be a need for Hans Zimmer to score the next Christopher Nolan film. To me, that is never going away, no matter if sync music on a micro scale ends up being free, because that is just something that filmmakers will always have a need for uh, excellent music on a high level. And so I literally, I don't think that changes any. Now, that industry has changed a little bit, and as far as prices and things like that, but it's it's all staying. So the the next part of that question is the platforms, and so yeah, I I think that sync licensing is coming more and more of a thing as there's more podcasts, there's more YouTubers, and really the definition of sync is changing very rapidly right now. So think about for any of the Twitch users that are out there, like there are now possibilities in in music licensing within the gaming atmosphere that we had not even talked about or anything so it's one of these things that like i think that the future is very promising but again we have to kind of redefine what music licensing even means and it doesn't mean what it used to and so we have to go out and find different ways to monetize and so yeah i'm very bullish on it So the next question is from Bobby. Uh, He asks, what is the simplest route to entry for offering publishing services for people and bands that I produce? So in general, what are some fair distribution portions for publishers and artists? Okay, great. Uh, Thanks, Bobby. So I have kind of a theory that 100% of nothing is nothing. So (laughs) we all know this, right? A lot of times people want to do publishing deals with people, but they can really give no value to them. So I'm a big proponent, and if you do uh, create a publishing company, create a win-win deal for the the artist. And so I've met a lot of great songwriters and artists that have really been through the mill with bad publishing deals. And so uh, one in particular that I'm thinking about has uh, written over 400 songs in her career with this publishing company. Ten made it to the light of day and got tracked, the rest of them will literally not see the light of day, those songs. So I think that's very unfair. And what my opinion about publishing is, and I think the future of publishing will be, is provide the value and then let's talk about payment. (laughs) Instead of let me take all of the publishing side, which if you actually get a deal, a big sync with something, of course, I think the fair deal is for the publisher to take the publisher side and the writer to take the writer side. Because again, 100% of nothing is nothing. You did half of the work to make that transaction. And of course, if the artist has more leverage, we can do a, a co-pub deal, which we're definitely down to have. But I think the easiest way to get in is to provide some value first to customers say, hey, I have a pitch over here. Let me get you a pitch and then we'll do a single song publishing agreement with that artist uh, to say, you know what, let me just work this one song. We'll give it a year. We'll give it two years. And then if it turns into nothing, then heck with it. You can do anything else with that song you want. So provide the value that you would provide and let the rest go. I think there's a really good question here from uh, Russ Muller. He says, uh, what trends do you notice among producers that are the most successful at generating income through licensing? I think 
I would add to Russell's question here. I would say specifically to people that you have seen on your platform that would call themselves producers rather than composers. So people that are collaborating and managing and stuff. Yeah. So we've kind of touched on this throughout the podcast, but number one, make uh, content on a regular basis. Quantity is very important here because it's going to get lost in the shuffle. So make a lot of it. Number two, don't just make... Uh, jam band music that like you're trying to make a you know uh, a fish album or something like actually make music that uh, listen to the trends and uh, listen to what people use on a YouTube video or a TV show or something like that and I've noticed also that people and producers that produce what they're great at usually end up way more successful than a producer that's only done rock music to then say well orchestral stuff sells so now i'm going to make orchestral music and that usually doesn't work out very well (laughs) for those people because they don't know orchestral music and uh and so i would say do what you're really really good at and then find a home for that music you know on whichever licensing platform you go with yeah, so Diego Casillas, I'm sure I got that wrong. I'm sorry, Diego. He asks, what back-end things do I need to have covered before I can sync one of my songs? Do I need ASCAP or BMI publishing first? SongTrust slash SoundExchange, what is the most critical? Ah, good question, Diego. So to do a sync, you do not technically need to have this stuff taken care of, which is nuts to me but it's true but it is within your best interest and i will say your best interest if you have these songs registered with a pro of some kind whether it be a bmi ascap csac or if you're international with some exchange some uh pro so and also sound exchange doesn't hurt anything at all so to bmi or the pros are tracking uh, performance royalties. So uh, just for those who don't know, especially myself, what is a PRO? What does that stand for? Oh yeah, performance rights organization. So companies like BMI, ASCAP, CSAC, and there's some international ones too. And what they do on your behalf is collect royalties, right? So it's a very convoluted system. Some of it's very old school and they collect on performance rights. Say a venue is playing your song live at Madison Square Garden, they're going to pay you for that. So it's very important that you have these songs logged. And I will say for any broadcast licensing that you do, they call it a white sheet. And this white sheet, people ask for it all the time with Soundstripe and we have a uh, a customer care department that deals with this. And th- this is needing the the BMI, PRO numbers and all of that kind of stuff. So yes, I think it's very important to have that stuff. Uh, I would say the most critical would be just getting registered with a PRO and registering your songs on a regular basis. And this is the one part that um, producers fell at most of the time is just forgetting to register their songs with PROs. And of course, in the beginning, you don't make much and it just seems like a waste. But get thousands and thousands of songs out there that you own the publishing to and it can add up. So again, we're talking about mailbox money, passive income, this is sort of the gold mine. And again, you might not see much from it, especially in MicroSync, but what if 
out of those 2,500 licenses that you got, 10 of them ended up on local TV in New Jersey, you know? So again, they have to pay those rights out. So you never know what you, what you might get there. So short answers. Yeah. You should sign up for ASCAP, BMI or CSAC before you start trying to get into this game just to cover your bases. Yep. And there's one more question here that I kind of want to touch on. It's from San Francesco. And the question is, if you have points as a producer, you're working with an artist and you have points, uh, royalty points or some sort of royalty split with them. Do you have any songs in your platform where it's paid out to multiple people? Is it always just one person? And like, does the producer who just has points on a record, do they get any sort of money from micro licensing? I just don't know how the, the system works. Oh yeah. So we used to have a pretty robust system that had multiple payouts and we eventually put a stop to that because it was just getting so out of hand. And so we would have 15 writers on one song. And so just keeping up with it was just a nightmare. And so you, at the end of the day, we had hundreds of writers and we did it on a tech standpoint, but it was still pretty complicated. So we ended up uh, shutting that down. But whoever has the relationship with the music licensing company. In some uh, instances, it is the producer because they're the most business-minded uh, individual. They are if they listen to this podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, we actually have uh, some producers that manage uh, the account, and so they pay out to the, uh, the artist appropriately. So, yeah, it's totally doable. Well, that's super interesting. You know, I've, we've mentioned this in the podcast before. If you can find a way to get cash flow for your business, whether that means the session musicians, you hire them, you pay them, and the artist pays you, that the money comes through your business, that's a good thing, a very good thing. And any opportunity you have to increase your business's cash flow, you should go for it within reason. So I love what you're saying there, Travis, about if you as a producer manage it for the artist... That's interesting. There's a lot of opportunity because how many artists do you uh, produce a year? And if you have a, a good relationship with the licensing company and uh, and it kind of saves time for the licensing yeah. company because they don't have to deal with 15 artists, they can deal with you. Uh, yeah, and there's a little, probably a little uh, houseworking uh, paperwork that you would have to do, some spreadsheets, but nothing crazy that you couldn't handle. And and most of the uh, the companies could probably give you a split spreadsheet or something like that. So yeah, I'd say it's pretty doable for sure. That's interesting too, because I think about a producer pitching their services to an artist of like, hey, I'll also take care of the licensing side of things for you. Yeah. All of a sudden it's like, whoa, you're a grown up. <laughs> we're going <gonna, laughs> to choose to work with you instead of Steve with the stain on his t-shirt that wanted to produce our record. <laughs> you're, you're differentiating yourself on your adulthood there. That is a very an adult thing to do, right? Funny story. When I first started in this, we didn't know what we were doing at all and no one would sign up for us. So we actually, me and the, the our A&R manager went to some local bars in Nashville and would just listen to music. And we were like, oh yeah, they would be good. So we would just walk up to a band and we'd say, hey, I'm with Lavello Music at the time. It was called Lavello. And uh, yeah, we're a music licensing company. And their jaw would just drop. And you're like, you're the most important person that they've ever talked to. <laughs> and we were nothing, by the way, at this time. And so it's just, it's so funny because everybody loves the thought of music licensing, but they don't know much about it. So I would 
I would say just just Google it. I'm sure there's some blogs around there somewhere that, about music licensing. There's blogs on our website about music licensing, YouTube music, and all this kind of stuff that's uh, I think could be very helpful because the best you could do is inform yourself about you know what is music licensing, what is what's a sync mean, what's publishing mean. Like we had to learn all this stuff when we first started, and we didn't know. And so it's just to show you that you can do this even if you don't really have a background in it. Just get on Google and learn <laughs> and ask people, you know? So where can people go to find more about, find out more about you and Soundstripe and anything else you have going on right now? Yeah, so I have pseudo had a blog for two or three years. I write on Facebook a lot and my blog is at Travis Terrell dot live uh, l-i-v-e and then my company is at uh, soundstripe.com Whoa!